0: This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time-consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at Tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's Tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote i use tegas literally every single day it's the first resource i use when i start researching uh, a new investment and it's one of the last things i do uh, before i finish up rounding out my research and i know you'll love it as much as i do before we dive into today's conversation i want to talk to you about mit investment management company also known as matemco the investment office of mit Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created emergingmanagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. All right, Luke, I was doing my initial research on on you and your investment strategy for this podcast. And the first thing I found when I went to your Twitter, which is where I usually go for any any new guest, is you mentioned how um and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's you were first overall in, in, in this, you know, website tip ranks, which I guess ranks um, you know, investment analysts or something like that. You were first overall in accuracy um in 2021, which Sounds really impressive. Uh, but I don't really like what is what does that mean? Like what is what does it mean to be rated first in accuracy and then like how significant is that achievement?
1: Uh so tip ranks doesn't disclose exactly how they measure that, but it's based on my seeking alpha articles. And so as number fifteen overall, and then out of the top twenty-five, I had the highest accuracy rating, which I think is just like how many like if i wrote an article that rated a stock bullish and then six or 12 months later the stock was up that counts as like one point for accuracy whereas if it's down then that counts against the accuracy score so i'm not sure exactly how they do it but that's they base
0: it on my seeking alpha articles basically got it i I, so is that is is that just another way of saying like your market timing score or like your Bottom ticking score, basically.
1: Uh, probably.
0: <laughs> that's fascinating. That's 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 fascinating. Um, walk us through your investment strategy, uh, and 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 philosophy. I know you are a micro cap investor, and we've actually fished in in in, in similar ponds. I know a name that we're going to discuss later, Auto Partner. That's one that's been on my watch list for a while, and I ended up. Watching I guess your 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 presentation on it um, a few a few weeks ago So walk us through your investment strategy today and kind of how that's evolved over time to where it is now
1: Yeah, so basically I'm looking for pretty high-quality businesses and I'm looking for the fastest growth in earnings and cash flow that I can find for as cheap as possible uh, so generally like under 15 or 10 times earnings is what I prefer. That said, I will pay up, especially if a company's growing like 50 or 100% a year, I'll pay like a 20 or 30 multiple sometimes. Uh, But at the end of the day, like I want companies, how a dollar gets to me from a company doesn't really matter. Like I just want as many dollars as soon as possible for as little as what i can pay
0: now if that mm. makes sense yeah it does but can you expand on that a little bit using an example
1: um sure i'll use expel maybe for this because it's my most successful pick uh when i first bought it, it was like 10-ish times earnings and they were growing earnings at about a hundred percent year over year and so like that's great example of a company that's trading at a really low multiple for their growth rate and so when i'm buying that i'm buying like my earnings in the stock are going to double this that year probably and i'm only paying 10 times earnings so i don't know it's just a mix of growth and the growth rate and what i'm paying for that and i want to pay as less as little as possible for as much growth or as much return coming
0: back to me as I can. And has that always been your strategy or have you evolved into this type of, I mean, I don't really want to call it GARP, but it's almost like growth at a attractive price. So gap. Yeah.
1: um, It has always been my strategy since I've been investing as like a fundamental investor. When I first got into markets, I did a lot more, like, technical stuff. And then I kind of got into fundamentals more. I traded options for a while, and I still trade options quite a bit. Uh, We can maybe get into that. But, uh, yeah, after a few years, like, I started to get into fundamentals more. And it just, like, that just always made sense to me. Like, I want as much money coming back to me, and I want to pay as little as I can for that. I think of it... I think of business as almost like money printers. And like, I want to pay as little as possible for this money printer and have it print as much money as it can over time and come back to me.
0: And
2: yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's basically seeing how, you know, if if there's a money printer that's printing a dollar a year, you know, and you pay, you know, can you pay $5 for that? Get your money back in five years. And you get to keep the money printer for free. And it yeah. still prints off that dollar a year. Um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a simple but you know powerful analogy there. You mentioned you traded on technicals, and I have a soft spot for technicals in my heart, um, using you know, trading off classical patterns and learning from Peter Brandt and guys like that. Uh, what type of technicals were you trading back then?
1: Uh basically technicals like trend lines support and resistance horizontal support and resistance like pretty basic stuff sometimes like breakouts uh, above a certain level just
0: yeah do you do any of that today still or no just pure fundamentals
1: a little bit i'll definitely draw some lines on some charts every once in a (laughs) while uh but i don't really trade on it very much anymore i mostly like i i'll use it to look at the stocks i already own from a fundamental basis
2: Hmm.
1: and it won't necessarily impact a decision i make but i do still watch technicals every once in a while
2: so i I use
1: it more on the overall market just to get a sense of like where we're trending
0: are we in an uptrend or a downtrend and yeah so if a stock for example, let's say a stock you own breaks some sort of horizontal support on a weekly time frame, will you make a decision based on that either to trim the position or maybe to exit if you think, okay, you know, broke down, so the odds of it going lower are higher, or is it just you're using it more as an idea of kind of maybe a pain or gain ratio you can expect, like, oh, it broke down, I should expect this thing to trade lower, you know, I just got to suck it up and hold through it?
1: Yeah, it's definitely more of the ladder there uh sometimes i'll trade around like a core position so it might have a core position in a stock and then i'll trade f- with a fundamental viewpoint and then i'll trade like smaller around that based on the technicals uh i haven't done that for a while but every once in a while you see something that's just like a picture perfect technical setup mm-hmm. so you need to take it and like yeah. I'm risking a small amount on these trades. It's nothing meaningful. It's just if I can achieve an extra like 0.1%
0: alpha, I'm happy. Right. And so how small are these? You know, you're taking like 25, 50 basis point swing trades around a core position, basically. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. Got it. A question I like to ask investors and, you know, someone like yourself that I haven't had a chance to really pick your brain is to paint me a picture of what a perfect investment would look like for you and you could probably just put in expel and we can move on to the next segment but i want to try to get outside of 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 expel of and um think about what the perfect investment setup business looks like for you and kind of what traits you would see and and we can we can you know kind of poke holes and run down rabbit holes after that
1: yeah so i'm I generally look for high quality. Uh, it's hard to describe, but uh, generally I look for growth in earnings and cash flow, but that's not always the case if a stock is cheap enough and earnings are declining at like 2 or 3% a year. As long as it's cheap enough, like I'll still be interested in that as long as it's still a pretty high-quality business. So, yeah, I think about like competitive positioning a lot. I want to understand like where this company sits in the industry how how they might be disrupted and yeah so ideally like i want a business that usually has positive earnings growth or free cash flow growth usually has a good track record of capital allocation usually well, always, I have to be able to understand it. Uh, and then I try to think about what is this company's competitive advantage and moat? And what would it take like for me to make not make money on this? And then, ideally, the cheaper, the better.
0: Yeah. You mentioned competitive positioning and you hunt in a lot of these micro-cap spaces. Do you ever find it difficult to determine like what makes this small little tiny company competitively advantaged against much larger competition
1: yeah that's definitely a thing in micro cap uh i don't really know how to describe it but if i think of like one stock i own is posibit their payments processor in cannabis mm-hmm. A lot of the bigger payment processors won't operate in cannabis and so that insulates pause a bit from these huge guys like square and then I don't really have to consider how this company competes against these large caps it's just how what are the barriers to new entrants basically
0: yeah and then I guess another way you could frame that is these companies that are small Let's say sub300 million dollar market caps. they might be going after what larger competitors think of as niche business segments that to the small cap or micro cap is this huge market opportunity. right? So for something like square that's a multi-billion dollar business, they might not see, you know if if, if, if something's a you know 500 million or one billion dollar market opportunity, that doesn't move the needle for them, whereas a 100 or 50 million dollar micro cap, you know, a $2 billion industry is a <laughs> huge runway for them.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's, yeah, that nails it.
0: And going back to uh, an earlier point, because you mentioned, you know, you focus on free cash flow growth and not obviously you want to pay as cheap of a price for the growth as possible. I assume some of this is you, you screen for these things. But my first question that that i would that i would have is like why why are you afforded the opportunity to a, to buy a company that's growing let's say 100% a year for 10 times earnings or growing free cash flow at 50 to 100% for sub 20 times earnings or you know sub 20 times cash flow um, is there is there like how much skepticism do you put into some of these numbers where you ask yourself like okay like if the, if everyone can see that this company's growing 100% why is it trading at 10 times
1: that's why i love microcap is because you get these things in microcap where institutions can't come in and buy up all the stock so like there's structural barriers for bigger investors to come in which means like microcaps have generally in my experience have way lower multiples than large caps so i just stick to like microcaps and and that's also why i go to countries like Poland, looking for stocks. Like, I don't yeah. physically go there, I just look for stocks in Poland. Uh, because like a lot of larger institutions can't go there or they won't go there, or it's too small. And I think that's probably like the biggest advantage you have as an individual investor. So why would I try to compete with an institution figuring out what Microsoft's quarterly earnings are gonna be when I can just go to microcap And find things growing just as fast as Microsoft
0: for like literally half the multiple. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Then the question at that point, though, becomes the liquidity and 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 realizing the the valuation gap, right? And so, you know, the 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 rebuttal there is if microcaps trade historically at 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 cheaper. Multiples of cash flow because of, let's say, illiquidity or you know the lack of scale in 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 that type of business. Like, what are the drivers for an investor to actually realize that opportunity? Is it just time? Is it is it capital returns from the business itself, um, or is there some sort of mean reversion? Like I know uh, I think it's Robert or Roger Ebitson in his like famous illiquidity as an investment style research paper. Um, you know, noted that liquidity is 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 mean reverting. So lower liquidity stocks tend to mean revert to higher liquidity, which is where you get a lot of the excess return. Um, but how do you think about that in terms of like return catalysts?
1: Yeah, so so far, I haven't found a stock that was too illiquid for me to buy. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not managing like a million dollars or anything, but like so liquidity, it is true that if a stock is illiquid, it's more difficult uh, for it to trade at a higher multiple until you get that liquidity to come in, which could take a few years for them to grow into a size where that liquidity com- can come in. Yes. However, if you pay say like four or five times free cash flow for a business, you don't actually need anything. You just need them to return that capital back to you as a shareholder if you pay four times cash flow for a business you're getting a 25 percent return
2: mm-hmm.
1: on that cash flow or on on what you originally put in so like you, at that point you don't even need the stock
0: to do well if they paid out as a dividend you're doing very well yeah so walk me through how you find these ideas and we're going to dive into auto partner next but the precursor to the auto partner discussion is how do you find something like an auto partner or like a you know like an expel or a or a liot um what is what is your process like at the top of the funnel and then how do you filter it down to getting into things like okay like auto parts the one i'm going to buy and 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 what are those what are those internal discussions
1: yeah so i get a lot of ideas from online sources like seeking alpha microcap club value event investors club i have an excel spreadsheet where i track invest the or fund quarterly letters and i just go through and i try to read every single one every quarter there's a lot of good ideas you can get just from that yeah and that saves that tends to save you a lot of time as opposed to going through a list from like a to z mm-hmm. like you're essentially outsourcing idea ge- like high quality idea generation from other good investors when you do this twitter i don't think i mentioned but i get a lot of ideas from twitter uh that said i do occasionally run screens and i want to start going through lists more next year in like 2023 because. I don't come up with very many unique ideas I find because of that. And I think finding some more unique ideas would be both fun and interesting for when I share them, like online and
2: mm-hmm.
1: more unique ideas get more traction. Yes, obviously, nobody's
0: heard of it. so yeah, unique ideas are also more intellectually stimulating, but the other side of the coin is there's no extra alpha for originality and that's that's like something that i i fight i fight personally um trying to find these very off the beaten path ideas but then you know realizing like it doesn't matter how off the beaten path it is like if it doesn't return you money if it doesn't generate returns it like it doesn't matter like you you're better off buying what everybody else already knows if you know if 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 the returns are better which is which is frustrating right because you take all this time you go to these corners of the market's like Poland and you find this little microcap Polish company and you know and over the you could you could put money in and over 3 to 5 years it just does nothing when you could have just bought Google yeah but that's why they play the game so <laughs> one thing i've thought about doing and you mentioned this with lists is uh, printing out. I did this for. I me. Mean, it's 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 over here on, on on my desk. But I did this for the Oslo Stock Exchange. Um, I printed out pretty much every ticker in a spreadsheet and just going through one by one to see if it's interesting. And I want to do that with Poland. Um, Poland's one of my favorite XUS places. So it'd be it'd be great just to get a ticker of every symbol on the you know gpw i believe is their exchange and just going through one by one to find interesting things
1: yeah for sure that i think if you have an idea of what you're looking for that can work really well and if you have the time to do it uh i have never actually made it through a full list from like a to z but yeah it's definitely something i want to do going forward
0: more let's dive into auto partner kind of speaking of poland here um you you pitched this on some investment present was it uh bobby Crafts microcap uh yeah. thing yeah okay got it i watched that one by the way i uh, thought thought it was a great presentation so for those that haven't heard of auto partner or didn't listen to your write-up let's dive into the business uh walk us through Kind of the thirty thousand foot view thesis, how you found it, and then what what made you interested to do more work.
1: So I have to give credit to John Sukiwar. I think I said that right on Twitter. Uh, he is how I found Auto Partner. Uh, so yeah, do you want me to just go into the business?
0: Yeah, go into the business. What's it do? Why is it great?
1: So Auto Partner is a Polish distributor of spare and aftermarket auto parts for vehicles, mostly like passenger cars. They they're the second largest distributor in Poland. There's about four main three other main competitors, four in total in Poland. Uh, about half their business comes from Polish domestic revenue and about half their business is exports to the rest of Europe. They're growing at like 20 to 30% a year and they're trading at nine times trailing earnings.
0: They, yeah. So they're parts distributor. Uh, Obviously, the key thing here, I would assume, just from diving into some distributor businesses when I was studying Ferguson, is massive scale economics here. So the bigger they get, the better pricing they get, the wider selection, which increases the value for their customers, which captivates the customers a little bit better, um, and then you kind of have that flywheel going. Um, is there anything more than that? I mean, I know that that was very generic, but what specifically about auto partners, we'll call it the distribution flywheel, that, that, that makes it great against its competitors?
2: I think
1: they have uh the second largest scale which helps but they also have a management team that has from what i can tell from looking at the financial statements has been pretty disciplined especially relative to some competitors and they've just consistently grown profits they've focused on like growing profitability not like overspending in one area uh only expanding into things that can be profitable within a few years Whereas some of their competitors have kind of gone into some things that are less profitable Or they've tried to expand the business into other Sort of areas rather than having like a focus Auto partner has been pretty seems to me to have been pretty focused on just Building out their distribution of auto parts Like they haven't even gone into tires. They might do that whereas some of these other companies have gone into like trailers and all these other things. I think auto partner has been very focused at doing what they do really well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that has led to them be becoming the second biggest distributor in Poland. And yeah, now they have the scale to keep going and they can just keep building out the business.
0: Walk me through, if you can, the unit economics, for someone like auto partner so let's just say um they sell spare parts like a generic uh like a drive chain system or a brake pad brake pad sounds a lot easier so let's say like a brake pad goes from the manufacturer of the brake pad to auto partner then auto partner then sells that brake pad to the end consumer walk me through the economics of that transaction, like how much, how much would they pay for something like it? Like you know, for every dollar that they pay for a brake pad, and brake pad assumes you know just a general part, how much of that you know do they keep in earnings, and then and then what do they sell that to the customer, and what are the economics of that transaction?
1: So, they'll source parts from the manufacturer. They'll then take it to one of their main warehouses. They have three or four main warehouses. Uh, from there, it'll go out. If it's domestic in Poland, it'll go out to what are called branch offices, which are owned by auto partner and from these branch offices, which are kind of like mini. Spots for that local area, they'll go out to the mechanics from there. Uh, There's so many different parts like That it's hard to I think focus on like an individual part and how much money they make on that. It's kind of like a scale-based business. They earn 27 to 29% gross margins and
0: yeah. Got it. So basically I'm looking on ticker last 12 months 30% gross margins like you said ranges between call it 27 to 30 and then between 7 to 10% operating margins. And then if I'm looking they do so they generate 28% return on equity, 21% return on capital, which is grown over the last you know since 2014 they did 16% and it's now up to 21%, so they're 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 definitely growing their you know returns through scale.
1: Yeah, if you look at their return on assets it's a bit Lower, I believe.
0: Yeah, it's 13%. And, yeah,
1: and then they use a bit of debt, which helps bring their return on equity up to about like 20%. I think the five year average is about 21% ish around there. Lately it's been like 29%. Uh that probably will come down a bit, but I do think they can probably maintain like a 20% return on equity in a ish return on invested capital Mm -hmm. while continuing to grow. Uh, So yeah, if you can maintain that and you only pay like nine times earnings, that's probably a stock that will do pretty well.
0: Yeah. The only thing that I see here, if I like, so I, again, I'm, I'm kind of looking at this business. Um, I have it on my watch list, but never really dove into it. Um, so I'm just kind of asking these questions as they pop up. So, you know, forgive me if if you don't, you know, know some of these off the top of your head. Um, if I look at the cash flow statement, um, I see, you know, let me convert this to Polish slotty, just so it's simpler. Um they're pretty low CapEx um CapEx requirements. However, a lot of cash drain comes in their inventories. So change in inventories and particularly in 2021 and then this year alone, um, you know, they did call it 186 million Zloty in net income in 2021, but they had a cash outflow of 257 million Zloty in, 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 in inventory. And then this year it's kind of the same thing. So how do you, how do you think about their, inventory and changes in inventory over time obviously that affects free cash flow but you know are these wild swings and maybe these buildups part of their plan uh part of their long-term strategy
1: yeah so that's something you'll find with more than just auto partner for some of my holdings where they'll be earnings positive but cash flow negative and that's a lot of the time because they're having to invest in working capital as the business grows so they need to buy more inventory they need to do all these things they need to build out more distribution uh hubs and like their branch offices and hire more so like i don't mind when a company is cash flow negative if earnings are growing and i can understand where that money is going to reinvest in the business basically uh, and so for Auto Partner, yeah, they're obviously a distribution business. So, like, inventory is huge. They need to reinvest in all these things to maintain their growth. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, one day, they'll probably stop growing. And then that's when the cash flow will come back to you as an investor. And hopefully, it's a lot more then than what you're paying for now.
0: Yep. Yeah. And as long as, I mean, as long as they're, Metrics. I mean, for instance, inventory turnover in 2018 was you know 2.13 times. It's 2.5 times today. And average days outstanding uh, inventory is it is 171 days in 2018. It's 146 days today. So as long as those numbers continue to improve, you know, these one time, maybe one or two time buildups in inventories aren't exactly the red flag that they would be on kind of a standalone basis.
1: Yeah, and like some of those things for me don't even need to improve as long as they're stable. Right. And they're consistent. Then that's good enough for me.
0: So do you have any major red flags or we'll call them thesis breakers where when you went through and you did kind of the diligence on this, like, are there one to three things that you say, you know, Hey, if this happens, if ABC happens, then this is a material change and kind of how I thought this business would, would work over time um
1: i think auto partner is probably very resilient uh like the business is i think the risks are probably more sort of macro things like uh so covid has boosted the prices they can charge on some Parts because of the shortage of inventory of new vehicles so instead of buying a new vehicle people are like forced to fix their old vehicle and then auto partner can capture some extra margin in there and that will probably come down a bit going forward so like how much that will come down that's a risk more so than like i don't think there's very many people that could come in Start a brand new business and start competing
0: with Auto Partner
1: in the next day or two.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm just looking at their competitors. Is Intercars the other big player? Is that, is that the number one player in the space?
1: Yeah, in Poland. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, one question I have is when you looked at Auto Partner and maybe compared Auto Partner to Intercars, why did you choose Auto Partner? Right? They're the number two, they're not the number one. And so, one kind of pushback could be oh well if you're focused on you know these scale economies then you would want to own the bigger one because they probably have you know a greater chance of achieving these scale economics that you'd want instead of a number two player
1: yeah so i like auto partner more because it's smaller and yet they're the still the second largest i think intercars is about three times bigger and so there's probably more room for growth for Auto Partner than there is for Inner Cars. And if that's true, then you'll probably make more money on Auto Partner. I haven't looked into Inner Cars as much as I probably should have. Uh, just I'll find time for it eventually. But like, I like that stock too. There's no reason I wouldn't own both necessarily. Uh, I just like Auto Partner right now because it's smaller and probably has more growth going forward.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Are you worried at all that you know these buildups and in inventories? Because even Intercars has had huge buildups and in inventories the last two years. Um, how how much of the inventory is at risk for you know markdowns or write downs um, in profit or you know in 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 margins and prices?
1: That's a good question. I think because it's mostly or almost entirely used parts I don't think there's much chance of like a big inventory write down unless it's on like really old vehicles and everybody stops driving that vehicle but like those a part in a 2005 car people are going to probably still drive for a while yet mm-hmm. if it's in decent condition but they're going to need the parts for that car still so like It's pretty hard to judge, but I think I don't think there's much risk of large inventory write downs. Uh, Maybe they have to work through some inventory for a while, but
0: yeah, I don't see any of it really going obsolete. One other thing you could probably say too is if we do enter a recession and consumer spending pulls back and the consumers tighten. and people, you know, trade down from let's say a newer car to a more used, older car. Um, you know, and they're driving those more often than the value of the parts needed to, you know, maintain an older car uh, are definitely more resilient because people aren't out buying new cars. They're, they'd rather fix the small problems on their existing older cars. Yeah. How do you think about position sizing? Uh, something like Auto Partner, and then we can enter into a you know broader portfolio allocation discussion but when you see something like this let's say it checks all your boxes and you're like okay like i you know it's trading at less than 10 times earnings it's growing you know it's growing double digits 20 25% how big do you make a position and then how many positions do you hold
1: i tend to buy like i'll start with like 2% of my account and just keep buying over time i don't have like any sort of position limits uh part of the problem with my current portfolio is that expel has become so big that it makes all my other positions look small almost no matter what right so i don't know i don't really have a good answer for how to size positions uh for my own account maybe like if i were running other people's money i would have to think about it more Mhm. Um but yeah, like I just buy what I'm comfortable with, which is kind of a
0: subjective feeling, but that's how I do it. Yeah. Have you sold any Expel since you bought it?
1: Uh a little bit. Um I probably own about 80% of what I originally bought and I've traded around it a bit too and I've traded options on it. So it's kind of hard to say, but I definitely own the majority of what I originally bought say under like 10 or $15. Nice.
0: Well, what's it at now? Is it? Oh gosh. I want to say it's at like 50 or 40 It's about
1: 60. Yeah. Uh, just under 60 today, I think, but recently it's been as high as 70. Last year it was as high as a hundred, which was kind of crazy. I sh- probably should have sold some because at that <laughs> point it was probably it, well at that point it was at the very high end of my estimated fair value so i did sell a little bit but i probably should have sold more but i didn't so whatever
0: <laughs> so what do you when 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 you see a stock and this is you know this is X a great example when you see a stock that gets to the upper bound of whatever fair value you put in um, for that stock when you in- initially underwrote it like what is that process that 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 framework you used like do you hold do you say you know what hey this is at the top but it's such a good business that i'm not going to sell um it sounds like you know maybe you wish you would have sold a little bit more but and obviously hindsight's 2020 um how do you how do you think about that in terms of returns right because obviously at 100 it's 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 hard to underwrite something for expel that's that's you know as good as buying something that's 10 times earnings, growing earnings at 30% per year.
1: Yeah, so I try to, like if there are obvious stocks that I'd rather own that are a lot cheaper than what's become a big position, I will sell the big position, obviously. The problem when Expel got to like 100 is that the whole market was extremely expensive so i wasn't really finding these other opportunities to sell and put money into so i probably sh- in hindsight i should have just sold and held cash for a while but at the time that wasn't that obvious so i think like knowing when to trim or sell is like in my opinion the most difficult thing in investing and yeah it's something i'm probably still working on figuring out How many positions do you hold on average? Uh, Probably like eight to 10 longs and then maybe a few shorts every once in a while.
0: We had a, uh, speaking of shorts, we had someone ask on Twitter, uh, they wanted you to, uh, it's actually Tiny Stock Ninja who has been on the podcast before. He's a good dude. Um, He wanted you to dive a little bit deeper into your TTCF short, which I believe, isn't that the tattooed chef company like that SPAC situation? Yeah. Walk us through that, that short. And that might give us a good, you know, a good excuse to talk about how you view shorting.
1: So tattooed chef, like it's such a bad business (laughs) and they're burning through literally tens or hundreds of millions of dollars for a bad business with like, like, it was just so obvious. I, I was really late to the short. I
0: shorted it at like eight dollars seven fifty. Well, walk us through the business first. Like, what is Tattooed Chef? Like, why is it a bad business? And then, so
1: they're a vegan
0: frozen food company. That's all you needed to say. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they're like... a vegan frozen food company. I, I mean, what was what was their enterprise value when you shorted the thing, and 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 what did the numbers look like?
1: um that's a good question i don't even know what their enterprise value was i just know it was like four times sales and they were literally earning like three percent gross margin and then it went negative gross margins seven quarters ago they had 185 million dollars on the balance sheet in cash today they're in a net debt position so they burned through hundred and eighty five million dollars when they're doing like 200 million in sales a year in just under two years Wow! so like the capital allocation has been horrible the whole everything about this business is horrible so like it's just I was pretty sure it was going bankrupt at seven dollars so I was like man I I need to short this because it's going a lot lower probably and I've since covered. I covered at like a dollar fifty because at that point, there isn't that much left to make. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was a pretty decent short.
0: So at one point, I'm looking at the chart again on ticker. September in 2020, I think it hit a peak of like twenty six dollars per share. And if we take the shares outstanding, we'll just you know like for like at at eighty four million. That's like $2.2 billion enterprise value um, or market cap. I'm sorry. And they were doing 150 million in sales. So it's a clean 15 times sales for a vegan plant-based snack company. Um, yeah. With 15% gross margins
2: <laughs> and burning,
0: de- <laughs> burning de- millions and millions a year.
1: 15% gross margins that are rapidly declining yeah. every quarter like it was just insane
0: wow so you shorted at seven and, and wrote it all the way down to one
1: yeah about a dollar fifty got it and like my shorts are pretty small positions because in the back of my mind I always have like GameStop and all these crazy short squeezes so oh, like, yeah on a percentage basis that like I made a lot but as a position size in my account, I didn't make that much, just because I kept it small.
0: And so you bought? I assume you, or I assume you shorted just the naked equity. You didn't use options there.
1: Uh, that's correct. Okay. I probably like in hindsight, if I had known it would go down to a dollar fifty that fast, like I could have made a lot more money on options. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes like. When I mean, the stock was seven for me to buy like a five put for like $2 and it has to go to three just for me to break even. So like at that point, I'd rather just short the stock. Yeah. And like their options weren't very liquid either.
0: Yeah, that's true. This this balance sheet, I'm just like laughing. Like at the end of 2020, they had, like you said, $132 million in cash and now they have $15 million.
1: Yeah, and I think they're twenty million into a credit line. Goodness! So they've they had of the like a forty million dollar credit line, and they're already twenty million into it. So they're they went from having a ton of cash to being in a net debt position. So they burned through all of their cash.
0: Yeah, I mean they've got forty six million in accounts payable plus twenty million in short term borrowings, and they've got fourteen million dollars in cash to pay all that.
1: And like the crazy thing is, they didn't even slow down. Like they just kept burning more and more and more. And it was like twenty million a quarter, next quarter, thirty million. And like it was obvious that they were very quickly gonna run out of cash. Mm-hmm. And then they did, and they're like, Oh, we ran out of cash. Who would have thought?
0: <laughs> so how do you how do you find these these shorts? And and you know, to kind of flip the question I asked you earlier is you know, obviously tattooed chef is kind of the perfect short, right? It's a deteriorating balance sheet, burning cash, margins compressing terrible product i you know if if for those listening if you are vegan like i'm not i'm not judging you but not a great product um like what is what is that framework for shorting
1: um so i don't actually remember how i found tattooed chef but it's been discussed on twitter a bit on value fin as a short uh there's some big youtubers that have covered it as a long And like, it's pretty clear that these guys don't have no idea what they're doing. And so like, I would watch their videos and it's just so insane. The things they say, like some of these guys at $20 are saying, oh, this is going to be the next Pepsi. It's going to be so big. It's going to be a 10 bagger from here. And I'm like, I don't know. It's just crazy. 2021 was just a crazy year for things like that.
0: Yeah. I mean... I think um what's his what's his name? George Lovatis of Upslope Capital. He had he he was always tweeting about Tattooed Chef. And I should have I should have listened and then I should have just looked at the stock and thought about shorting it. But you like you mentioned earlier, like these game stops and these short squeezes, it's just not worth it to me um to short something that hyped or that kind of in the hype cycle. Which, you know, if you were a SPAC in 2020, 2021, that was the, that was kind of the eye of the, of the hype storm.
1: Yeah. I've, like, 2021 almost scared me off of shorting, but this year has definitely brought me back into looking for shorts. I think, uh, one thing I look for is like a, where they're heavily diluting shareholders. And I think that helps. Stop one of these massive short squeezes because they're constantly flooding the market with new shares Yeah, which pushes the stock price down and if it's like Short interest is nine or ten percent then it's pretty unlikely That's that it's gonna have one of these massive squeezes But if if it's a low float, they're not issuing very many more shares and it's like 30 or 40 percent short interest then yeah, those are what I stay away from because those are the ones that can go insane
2: Mm-hmm.
0: another wrinkle in your investment strategy that you've mentioned before at least on twitter is is options selling whether it's you know selling puts or i don't know if you sell puts and calls but you tweeted that you were selling puts on you know stuff like expel or your holdings on expel um walk us through that part of your process and why why you do it and 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 how you do it um you know whether you do it consistently or like what's the what's the framework there how far out do you sell the puts and And how do you decide when to do that?
1: Yeah, so I've been trading options longer than I've been a fundamental investor. And so like for a year straight, I dove really deep into options. So when I'm, and like most options will expire worthless, you generally wanna be on the selling side of options and collect that premium and just let them decay generally i'll uh go out 45 to 60 ish days um at about like maybe a 30 delta option so out of the money but not like super far out of the money and mm-hmm. those tend to have the best decay and i'll just wait for them to decay and hopefully the stock just goes sideways or in the opposite direction of what i'm selling so if i'm selling a call i want the stock to stay flat or go down if i'm selling a put i want it to go up or stay flat and like i just think you can add a lot of alpha from doing things like that because you can do that like almost every month uh potentially like if i sell a put on expel once a month for a dollar and I do that 12 times a year. I make an extra $12 on the stock, which is a pretty significant amount. Mm-hmm. Uh obviously you need to like control your size with options. Like if you don't know what you're doing, options can be extremely dangerous. So like it's not like I'm out here selling hundreds of puts. I might sell <laughs> a few puts. And then I have to be comfortable with getting assigned the stock if right. it goes down to my strike. And I have to be. Like I have to have enough money in the account to then hold the stock or figure out what to do then. So like you can't go crazy. But yeah, I think generally being short premium, especially when implied volatility is high and like implied volatility rank or percentile is high on that individual stock is generally the best time to sell premium. And Mm -hmm. then you just sit back and wait for it to decay wait for volatility to come in and yeah
0: so what that looks like just for those that may not be familiar with the strategy and we'll use selling puts as 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 the example right so let's say you own expel um and and you own it at a cost basis of 15 it's trading at 30 35 and then one day you know some news comes out or whatever and it 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 gaps down five ten percent. Um that 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 gap down is 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 when you would have a, a massive influx in volatility. And so the implied volatility would rise. And that's when you would get these good opportunities to sell the premium because you're selling when there's a big price move when there's lots of volatility and what you're saying is okay, you know, I see that you know it's down big I'm going to sell, you know, let's say it gaps down, you know, from 30 to 20 and you say, okay, I'm going to sell the 20, dollars strike puts a month, you know, a 40, 45 days out. And I would gladly own expel at that price. If I was assigned, is that kind of the rationale there where you're just kind of looking for these big, big moves that, that bring volatility? Yeah,
1: that's pretty much exactly it. Like,
0: yeah. Did you thought did you did you think about doing that for calls when Expo was at one hundred dollars?
1: Yes, um, I might have even sold some. I forget
0: mm-hmm.
1: what exactly I did there, uh, but yeah, I think if you own a stock and the stock goes up quite a bit, even in the short term, but you don't maybe don't want to sell any shares, you can sell calls out of the money. And just collect that premium. And then if the stock keeps going up, maybe you lose the stock at a higher price, but you obviously make money as the stock goes up. Or the stock doesn't go there and you collect the premium and then it expires and you have the premium. And it just like you can view that as lowering your cost basis, or there's like a few different ways to view that. But it just at the end of the day, it adds some extra alpha that I think a lot of people don't do, but probably should consider doing. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I mean, it also makes you feel like you're Warren Buffett creating your own little float machine with the premium you're receiving. Yeah. Which is never a bad thing. (laughs) So another, another aspect of this conversation that uh, people asked on Twitter uh, when I, when I tweeted that I was, I was getting you on the, getting you on the podcast was your journey to taking the CFA exam. And, I just wanted to ask how that's going and uh if you would recommend it to other investors and 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 maybe discuss some things that you're learning that you didn't think that you would that you would learn or kind of some um you know I think Patrick O'sonesty put it uh you know dogs barking where you didn't expect or you know dogs not barking when you expected dogs to bark.
1: Yeah, so I haven't even written level 1
0: yet. I'll be
1: doing that in February 2023. So I can't really say yet I, if I can recommend it to other people. I've had people tell me that it's not worth it at all. I've had people tell me that it's one of the greatest things I ever did. I think uh like I've been in markets for 10 years. I've been eligible to do CFA for 4 or 5 years and I only recently have like gotten into it I think I underestimated the scope of the content none of it is like crazy difficult especially if you've been in markets for like a while like I have it's just such a massive scope of content that like when it comes to exam day I don't know how much of that I'm gonna remember right uh, so i guess we'll find out
0: <laughs> you've been posting some tweets about how like every cfa practice exam question you've gotten is like wrong like what
2: <laughs> what's not at, what's well,
1: behind that <laughs> i've posted like four or five maybe out of a few hundred questions that i've done so like it's not that many but pretty good hit rate i think you'll
0: pass with that with that hit rate
1: yeah um it's like any exam some of the questions can be worded in a way that can be interpreted differently than what the question really wants uh so like and they're probably designed to be like that right it's just some of the answers you could argue with so yeah i don't know you have to like try and figure out which answer is actually the answer that they want
0: and hopefully you can get that right get inside the mind of the cfa what's your long-term plans as an investor right you're taking the cfa there's obviously reasons you want to take it maybe to you know level up your game um bring a little bit of uh you know credibility kind of in air quotes to to your process and to you know yourself as an investor what are your long-term goals Um,
1: I either want to be a full-time individual investor or run a fund eventually one day. Uh, Currently, I'm not, I just invest my own money. I would be interested in potential jobs in the industry. Uh, And then eventually, yeah, just get to a point where either I can just live off what I'm investing or run a fund And I think CFA will probably add a lot of credibility to that if I decide to go the fund route. So I don't really see very many downsides to getting CFA and Mm -hmm. pretty much only upsides other than maybe the time I spend on it. But I have the time,
0: so I might as well do it. Yeah. Uh, But yeah. Are you looking at? Uh, and we're we're just kind of wrapping up here now. I mean, you've you've given us an hour of your time, and this has been a great conversation. But uh, are there any ideas that you're diving into now that are exciting? Stuff like uh, auto partner, um, you know, things things like that that occupy the most of your time.
1: Yeah. So I think I tweeted the other day what my holdings are. Uh.
0: do you want me to just like read them or or, i don't know like i'm gonna see if i can find them i remember seeing the tweet um but besides the stuff that you're owning now like is 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 there anything that's fighting for a position in that portfolio something that's looking a little bit better
2: uh
1: there are a few stocks i'm watching that i don't own one is table track tbtc they provide casino back-end management software basically yep And that stock has been on a bit of a tear recently, kind of, it's been taking off without me a bit. And so I don't really want to chase it. That said, I've had a lot of success where a stock will go from like $2 to $5 and I buy it at five and then it goes to 20. So I don't know, just right now in a bear market, it's a little tough for me to buy some of these things that start to run away
0: from me. Yeah. Yeah. What about White? Uh, what is it? White Haven Coal? Yeah, that is it's... not a micro cap. That is a uh, what is it? A five billion dollar, five you know, almost six billion dollar business. Walk me through that thesis. How'd that end up in your book?
1: So, it's a small position, and I'm a coal noob. Like I don't know that much about coal. However, this stock is really cheap and they're basically returning all cash flow to shareholders. So, like, I almost don't need to understand that much about the business if I think that's sustainable. And in this case, if coal prices, even if they get cut in half, like the stock will still be at a pretty cheap multiple and they'll still be returning capital to shareholders. So I think it's pretty hard to lose on Whitehaven coal, but I'm definitely not an expert on coal. So
0: yeah, there are there are way smarter people on coal than me. Yeah, they're doing a lot of just I mean I'm just looking at it and three times cash flow. Um and last the 2022 as of June they generated almost two and a half billion in 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 free cash flow and pretty much 1.2 billion of that went to Um, you could think of it as shareholder-friendly stuff. So repaying debt, buying back stock, paying dividends, um, which is interesting. And so have have they basically said, like, we're returning 100% of our cash to shareholders after we pay off debt? Or is it just, you know, hey, this is what we're doing?
1: Yeah, I believe that's basically their attitude is we're not going to expand production. We're just going to return money to shareholders because we're making a lot of it. And... We don't want coal prices to come down if we expand production too much. And that's like more of an industry thing. It's the same thing in oil. Uh, But like when you have a stock that is that cheap and returning capital directly to shareholders, it doesn't, it's, it's pretty hard to lose money in that situation.
0: I like the chart too. Now that I'm looking at it. Yeah, this is a good idea. I like this. I'm gonna have to look a little bit further. So, thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, there's some other cool stocks too that look interesting. There's some debate on FinTwit about which one's the best. I just like White Haven because they're buying back shares. Some of these other companies are paying dividends, and there's a whole debate about which of that is better. In my opinion, it doesn't make much of a difference but I do like companies that are buying back shares because it almost provides like a level of support for the stock price whereas a mm-hmm. dividend doesn't necessarily do that so yeah I don't know yeah, well, plus I, you're like, not
0: getting I mean plus you're not getting taxed um like you are with a dividend
1: yeah and I might even like buy a basket of different coal stocks yeah at some point I haven't done that yet but I think I think there's merit to a strategy where if there's a lot of really cheap companies in an industry, you just buy a basket of three or four of them as if it were one position and you just let them go and see what happens.
0: Yeah. Were you ever pitched uh the Peabody Coal from the Cole Brethren on Twitter?
1: I've seen some tweets about it, but I I haven't really looked into it. Uh like I don't even know what's the free cash flow multiple or the cash flow multiple.
0: I Man, think I wanna say I wanna say it's two times, but let me check. I think
1: the American ones are a bit higher than the Australian ones. I could be wrong about that though.
0: The problem with stuff like Peabody though is you'll get management that like fools around and says that they're gonna buy another actually buy an Australian coal miner and expand and do all this stuff and um, yeah, like let me see where they're trading real quick. Okay, yeah, so three, three and a half times free cash flow. So basically, what uh, what White Haven's trading at?
1: Yeah, um, that's the other thing that really annoys me is like if a company, if management their stock is trading at three times cash flow and they go out and pay six times cash flow for an acquisition like that makes literally no sense just buy back your own stock so that's yeah like, i like how white haven is buying back their own stock they're not going and spending extra money with bad capital allocation and weird acquisitions they're just returning it to shareholders so yeah. it keeps it simple I like it.
0: Yeah, no, that's 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 interesting. I'm I'm putting it on the watch list and going to do a little bit more work on it. Um just a couple closing questions for you Luke. Thanks so much again for doing the pod. Uh it's nice to get one in before the end of the year. And uh hopefully this gets you to your I think what 5000 follower goal. Um that'd be that'd be pretty cool. Um, yeah, I'm
1: about 150 followers on Twitter away from
0: 5000. That'd be fun hopefully. to hit. By then, yeah. The hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, this helps. Um, where can people go to find out more about you? Speaking of Twitter, what's the what's the handle?
1: So the handle is at Luke Walgram, spelled basically how it sounds. Uh, and you can also sign up for my Substack, which used to be paid but now is free. But I might not be posting on there for a while. But you can go and sign up with your email at lukewalgram.substack.com. And me yeah, so-
2: why you
0: walk me through why you took it off of paid. Because I remember you tweeting reading about that and it became this like pretty large discussion.
1: Uh, there were several reasons. I had a post about why I did it. But the first one was I wanted to like focus all my efforts on CFA for now. Yeah, And the second one was with a bear market, it was, I was finding it you know, pretty difficult to grow the newsletter, even though it was like in my opinion, really cheap is 10 bucks a month or $100 a year, but still like, I don't know, people just don't want to subscribe in a bear market. And it wasn't very big. It was like a decent chunk of change, but nothing massive, not enough to live on. So I was like, yeah, just uh, maybe one day I'll restart something like that. But for now, Mm -hmm. it's it was just time to end it and focus on some other stuff.
0: Got it. Got it. So, yes, yeah, so you can go check out the Substack, go follow him on Twitter. And then the last question, Luke, that I ask everybody is if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? It would definitely you can't be say Warren Buffett. You can't say Warren Buffett.
1: It would be Kobe Bryant.
0: Nice. That is the first time we've had Kobe's name on this. And really? I've been doing this for three years. It's wild. So why why Kobe?
1: I think Kobe embodies like an attitude that is insane, like insane work ethic, and just striving to be the best all the time. And I think that's pretty admirable. And yeah, like if you don't... I would suggest people go watch The Redeem Team on Netflix, and then you'll understand why. Yeah, I still need to see that it's it's really good i definitely recommend watching it
0: have you listened to um my buddy david senra who runs the founders podcast he's got a couple episodes on kobe bryant have you listened to those i have not oh dude yeah you got to do that right after right after this go listen to him uh it's you know the, the the podcast is just founders um that 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 you can type in but yeah um kobe's just he's just a absolute beast like if you want to model a work ethic after any professional athlete it's probably kobe bryant above everybody else yeah so that's such a good answer man that's probably my favorite answer of the year right here at the end of december so thanks for thanks for bringing it home like that um luke thanks so much again for this for this conversation man best of luck on the cfa uh i i hope you pass and uh you know if you if you have any ideas um for 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 new stocks do not hesitate to reach out um you know i would i would love to keep sharing ideas and I, I i enjoy all the content you post on twitter
1: yeah thanks for having me it was fun
0: this episode is brought to you by ticker ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you the individual investor ticker.com is powered by s&p global capital iq and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data Estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash Hive. That's T I K R.com forward slash Hive.